Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I see that many of you do, we are in the book of Titus. Have you ever like walked into a room and you, you know, your kids or your spouse or, or somebody's in the middle of a TV show and you're like, oh, what's going on? You know, you kind of like walk into the middle of a movie and you're just kind of feeling lost. Well, if you're a guest to faith this morning, you have walked into the middle of a sermon series. And so I just kind of want to bring you up to speed real quickly where we are at. Uh, We are in the middle of going through the book of Titus, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Titus uh, was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul uh, was a church planter, and he had a couple interns, a couple young guys who were preachers, uh, Timothy and Titus. And so what Paul would do is he would travel around the Mediterranean Rim planting churches, and as after he would plant a church, he would stay a little while, and he would move on to the next area uh, around the Mediterranean basin, and then he would plant another church. And he would oftentimes leave a group of leaders uh, uh, in, in charge of the church. And the church that Paul left Titus in charge of was on the island of Crete. And Crete had a reputation as being a wild place. It was where people partied. It was where there were, let's just say, very low moral standards. And Paul wrote this letter uh, to Titus. Paul's off doing what Paul does. But there's Titus uh, on the island of Crete. And so Paul wrote him a letter to encourage him. And he, he starts his letter saying, hey, Titus, you need to straighten things out because the immorality and the partying and the craziness that's going on on the island of Crete, it's starting to seep into the life of the church. And things are kind of going wonky. They're going a little bit uh, sideways in the life of the church. And so Paul wrote this letter to Titus to encourage him and to give him clarity in terms of what Titus needs to do to straighten things out. And so we could have called this sermon uh, series, How to Live as a Faithful Christian in a Culture Around You That's Gone Wonky or Sideways, but that's kind of a clunky uh, sermon series. And so we're calling this sermon series Blueprint for a Healthy Church. It's just, it's kind of a marketing gimmick, if you will. Um, but we just thought, hey, that, that kind of is what we're, we want to be about as a congregation. And truly, that's what uh, Paul is trying to encourage Titus to be all about as well, is creating a healthy church. And uh, uh, so if you were here uh, last week, um, uh, John, uh, where's John? There he is, uh, took us through uh, uh, the, uh, another part of the sermon series. And so Paul's writing to uh, Titus saying, hey, intern, these are the things that I want you to really pay attention to and to think about. And so he says, build it on the soil uh, of Jesus Christ, then have a foundation of, of leaders who are filled with character. Make sure your plumb lines uh, are, 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 are filled with truth, which of course is scripture. And then last week, John uh, led us on this idea of, okay, now get a bunch of reputable builders uh, who can really pour into uh, building this church uh, with righteousness. And it's all about discipleship. And what, what Paul was doing was just kind of identifying, you know, very specifically, specifically and maybe even granular um, ways in which particular people in the congregation 
uh, were uh, invited uh, to serve out in their roles. And I thought John just did a great job. Don't you think John did a great job last week? Just kind of leading us through that. You know, frankly, a, a tough topic and, and a, a very controversial topic even today in many, many churches in terms of, you know, what is the role of women? And so John led us through that just great part. And I'm going to kind of pick up and continue on. So this is kind of part two of reputable leaders this morning and really looking at this idea of uh, orthodoxy, right beliefs or right doctrine, uh, and orthopraxy, um, right living or right action. Because you got to have both. Uh, you got to have good doctrine, you have to have sound doctrine, you have to have solid doctrine, uh, but then you got to live it out, and that oftentimes is the hard part in the life of the church. All right, so everybody in Titus 2, um, beginning with verse 9, let's pray. God, we thank you um, for this time together as we worship you, where we can look at a, just a, a peek into a letter from Paul to Titus, and reminded again, Lord, um, how relevant your word is, that it continues to speak to us. And so, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, in the first part of chapter 2, Titus 2, Paul is writing to Titus saying, okay, this is how young men should behave. This is how older men should behave. Um, this is how young women should behave. And this is how older women should behave. And we don't exactly know how Paul is defining young and old. So I'm just going to put us all in the young category, don't you think? I, I think so. Um, but uh, anyways, we're going to pick it up uh, where Paul's going to continue on this list of how we uh, in the church ought to behave. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but show that they can be fully trusted. Now we need to spend just a little bit of time talking about this idea of slaves and slavery. Because when I say the word or read from the text this morning, teach slaves our minds immediately go to uh, colonial slavery in America in the 18th and 19th century, right? That's just that's what we learned about. And so we think about that kind of slavery. That's the image we have. But I want to ask you this morning to kind of suspend that image, put that image on the shelf, because for us as Americans living in the 21st century, that's very real for us because that's part of our uh, collective history. That's not the kind of slavery that Paul is addressing because slavery uh, in Greco-Roman culture in the first century was different than colonial slavery. So I want to spend just a moment this morning kind of unpacking what this whole idea of when Paul writes about slaves and addressing to Titus, um, slaves need to uh, be subject to their master and everything. First thing I want to just kind of lay out there is the, 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 the Greek word for slave is doulos. Doulos. And, and the idea behind this, it's while it does mean slave, it also means bond servant or just servant. 
And I don't like the word uh, slave. In fact, some of your Bibles might even say uh, bond servant. And I think the problem with translating from the Greek to the English as using slave is our minds immediately go to colonial slavery. And what Paul is writing about is a very different kind of slavery. So doulos in the New Testament shows up 127 times. Over and over and over. It's very much a part of their culture. And many uh, archaeologists, historians, scholars believe that in the first century Roman, Greco-Roman culture, somewhere between a third and a half of the people were slaves. They were doulosses. They were bond servants. Uh, they were servants. And um, ab about 33% of them were formerly uh, doulos which means about two-thirds of people-ish uh, had experienced some shape. They themselves were either currently a doulos or they were formerly a doulos. And so this is very much a part of their culture. It was very common for people in their time to have experienced uh, and to, to be an indentured servant, a bond servant, uh, a servant, a slave of some, uh, some sort. And I don't want to overly uh, romanticize it, but one, I just want to just call out how common it was in their culture, how prevalent it was that many, many people were engaged in the, in the com culture and community. They themselves or others around them uh, were, were, were due losses. But it was this idea, and I don't want to over-romanticize it, but it was just so common that in the Old Testament, many people referred to themselves or others referred to themselves as a doulos, as a, a, a bondservant or a servant. So God refers to Abraham as a slave of God. Joshua refers to himself as a doulos or a, a slave to God. David is referred to as a slave of God. Isaiah also refers to himself as a slave of God or a, a servant of God. So this, this language comes up over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 refers to himself as a doulos, as a slave or a servant or a bondservant to God. Timothy is referred to in Philippians. James refers to himself. Uh, Peter, Jude. I mean, do you hear where I'm going with this? This is just language that they used. And I think it's, it's so foreign to us to think about someone referring to themselves or uh, someone else as a slave to God. But this was very much a part of their culture. So doulos is a, a slave, a servant, or a bondservant. And I just kind of want to give you a little bit of a definition uh, of what, what is a doulos. It's a person who agrees, and I'm going to even put agrees in air quotes, to serve others in exchange for provision. So it's a person who agrees to serve others in exchange for provision. And, and I put uh, the, the agrees in air quotes because um, even people in colonial slavery, they agreed under duress, right? to provide a service for others in exchange for provision. So there's, there's two sides of it. And this is why when Paul and others write about being a slave or a servant or a bond servant to God, uh, there's this idea of uh, providing a service in, in and then there's going to be some kind of uh, provision that is provided. And so when Paul writes about himself being a slave to God, he's acknowledging or recognizing 
that he is in service to God, but God has provided for him. And for the Apostle Paul, there's really uh, two, uh, two different ways to look at this. We are either slaves to sin or we're slaves to God. And when you're slave to sin, the provision, what you receive is some kind of short-term benefit, right? So if you've ever sinned, and we've all sinned, right, there is some kind of provision or there's some kind of short-term benefit to it. I mean, and oftentimes the benefit to sin is that it just feels good, right? And if, you're, if, you're, if you've sinned and it doesn't feel good, then you're not sinning in the right way, right? You're just not doing it right. Because that's what sin does, is that there's, you, you sin and it just, in the moment it feels good. But Paul says there is another kind of uh, benefit to being a slave, and that's being a slave to God. And the benefits or the provision is so much better. It's eternal freedom, it's joy, it's love, it's peace. And so that's kind of how Paul views this. And I think if we don't get our heads around this, we can uh, ask ourselves, what, you know, what, what does this have to do with me? And, and what, what I'm trying to lay out for you is this idea of um, doulos is being a slave, a servant, a bondservant. It's very common in Scripture. And so Paul, this is why Paul begins his letter to Titus in this way. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. What Paul, when he writes this letter to Titus, he's saying, hey, I have a master and he has provided everything for me. And so Paul willingly embraces this idea that he is a slave to God. So just want to back up, go back to the definition. A, a, a doulos is a slave, a servant, a bondservant, a person who agrees to serve others in exchange for provision. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Yeah, this, we call it a job, right? <laughs> Those of you who are in the workforce, you are a doulos. You are a bondservant. You are a servant. If you get a paycheck, you are willingly agreeing to serve, provide a service for a company, a business, whoever it might be, in exchange for provision. Now, if you don't get provision, we call you a volunteer, right? But I want to invite us to lean into this text this morning. Because oftentimes we can look at a text and go, oh, that doesn't relate to me. I'm not a slave. But I want you to think about if you receive a paycheck. And so I went to the Bloomington Normal. If you work, there's the top 10 companies in our community uh, in McLean County. You are servants of your employer, wherever you might work, if you're working in the workforce. Some of you feel like slaves in the workforce, I get it. But there's this idea that you have willingly agreed to provide a service for others around you. Now, we call this marketplace ministry. And there's just really three ideas that kind of Paul is talking about in the marketplace ministry. So I'm going to read this text again, and I want you to think of yourselves in the workplace, in the marketplace ministry. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not talk back to them. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And so what Paul is writing about here, it's really about uh, integrity in the workplace. 
Don't steal. Don't steal from the company. Have integrity if you're still working. Provide excellence. It says try to please their masters. Have excellence in what you do. And then the third thing is uh, be a servant. Slaves, be subject to your master. And so I think if, as you're thinking about how you approach your job, your day job, how are you living into integrity, excellence, and servanthood? When a Christian serves in, in a job, we don't just, we're not just cogs in a wheel. We don't just do stuff. We don't just do tasks. We have God-given functions. We have God-given purpose. We have God-given roles that we're serving. I mean, if, when you wake up tomorrow and you go to work, do you think about just the tasks that you're going to do? Or do you think about your God-given roles and that you are an ambassador, that you are a doulos, that you are God's servant going to serve other people with integrity, excellence, and servanthood? And then Paul explains to, to Titus and to us why this is so important. Why, why do we do this? He says, so that in every way you will be teaching about God, our Savior, is attractive, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Why do we do this? Why do we serve our employers with integrity, uh, as a servant, and with excellence? We do it so that we're communicating a message to others around us, that we make God attractive. It's about making the gospel attractive. Your life is about making the gospel attractive to others. In the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, there was a, a media guru, a, a guy by the name of Marshall McLuhan. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, and he was, uh, he was paying attention to all the media going on around him. And he talked about, you know, when a person used a particular media, how that media could really uh, uh, impact the culture and the community around them. In fact, it was McLuhan who 30 years before the internet showed up. Remember before the internet showed up? Those are good days, right? But 30 years before the internet showed up, Marsha McLuhan was talking about this idea of mass media and communicating to the world. He predicted it long before it was a thing. And what he was saying is, okay, there is a message, whatever the message is, from, and you're trying to get that message from point A to point B. And you can be really, really effective at it depending on how good you are at communicating the message. And this is actually the guy that coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And this is so true uh, in our lives. It's not just what we say. It's not just the content of what we say, but it's how we say it. It's uh, like my dad used to say to me, son, watch your tone, Right? It's not just what I was saying, but it's how I was saying it that really impacts uh, how effective we are in our communication. And I think for me, one of the, the best examples of it, understanding this idea of the medium is the message is a comedian. And you think about maybe your favorite comedian who, who tells a joke and how they are so effective at telling that joke. Now you think about maybe your Uncle Jimmy who likes to tell jokes too, and you're like, oh, he told the same joke as you know, Robin Williams and it wasn't nearly as funny, right? 
But what's the difference? Same content, but a professional comedian, it's how they deliver that joke that makes it funny, right? You can think about example after example of comedians. Their, 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 their delivery becomes the X factor. It's why it's just like, oh, that, I love watching that comedian. They're so funny because it's not just the story they told, but it's the look on their face and it's their, their body language and their expressions. And this is what Marsha McLuhan was talking about when the medium is the message. And Paul says, you can have the greatest evangelism strategy. You can know all about Jesus. You can know all about the Bible. But your delivery becomes completely flat if you in your day job are not living out integrity, excellence, and servanthood. See, we're always communicating to people around us, whether it's our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, you know, when we go to a restaurant, wherever we're at, we're communicating something to people around us. And when we have the attitude of being a doulos, a servant, Paul says, that's when your communication gets really um, communicated in, in, a, in, a, in a powerful way. So verse 11, he continues on. For the grace of God, because he's going to now tell us how to do this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, then the... These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So I think what Paul is saying here is you need to do good. You need to do good works. And you do these good works, not because you have to do these good works, but because you want to do these good works. And that's really the idea that, or the differentiator in terms of grace and works. We do good works as Jesus followers, not because we have to, not because God tells us we have to. In fact, we call that works righteousness, right? We've been talking about that the last several weeks. But we do these good works because we want to. This is where the grace of God comes in. We allow the grace of God to come over us and we lean into the story of what Jesus has done for us over and over and over and it transforms us, it changes us. When we allow the grace train to run over us, we're just like, man, I am so grateful because I'm a sinner and I know what Jesus has done for me. And because what he has done for me, he's forgiven me, and I don't deserve to be forgiven, I want to extend that same grace to other people. I want other people to be set free. Why would I not want that message for everyone around me? So we, we do good works, not because we have to, but, but, but because we want to. You know, it's interesting, uh, Martin Luther uh, called this the dilemma of the great commandment. And the great commandment, of course, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Right? You guys know this. 
And Luther says, this is a dilemma. This is a problem. Because we are being commanded to love God. See, if I love something, you don't have to command me to do it. You never have to command me to eat a steak, kiss my wife, or take a nap. I, you're just like, hey, can you do that? Yep, check, check, check. I can do those three things. See, those are things that I love to do. So if I love to do those things, I don't need to be commanded to do them, right? Do you hear the dilemma? On the flip side, I hate Brussels sprouts. If you commanded me to, to, to love Brussels sprouts, I'd be like, yeah, that's not going to work. I mean, you could even wrap bacon around the Brussels sprouts. I'm still not going to like them. See, this is the dilemma with being commanded to love God. Be like your parents saying to you, hey, I want you to marry her. You're, you're, you know, you just graduated from high school. I want you to love her. I want you to marry her. And you're like, what? So your parents can't force you to love someone that you don't know, or, or frankly, maybe you don't even love her. But this is the dilemma that Luther just wrestled with. When we're being commanded to love, it's impossible because if we love it, you don't need to command me to do it. I'm just going to do it. But if we don't love... Man, that's when it gets really tough. And so what Paul is uh, saying to Titus here is the only way you can do this is through the grace of God. The only way that you can actually love is that God gives that to you by his grace. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it through our own efforts Another kind of illustration I want to just throw out here because, you know, Christianity, to be clear, and we talk about this all the time, it's not a to-do list, right? We don't just do these things because, you know, we can get closer to God. But it's about a relationship. It's about staying connected to God. And so I thought, you know, that maybe another illustration is it relates to rose bushes. And I think there's really only two ways to put roses on a rose bush. And one way is uh, to get a bush it could be a rose bush or any kind of bush, and then you could go down to the store and you could pick up uh, a dozen or a couple dozen roses, and then you could get zip ties or duct tape, and you could put them on the, on the rose bush or maybe a stapler, I don't know. And, and, and so what you could do is you could put these roses on a rose bush, and then as cars are driving by your house, they're like, wow, there's, that, those are really pretty roses on that rose bush. And, and, you, and you could do that. But here's the problem. Those roses are going to go limp, right? They're going to die. And what you're going to have to do later on in the week is you're going to have to take those roses off. You're going to have to go down to the store, get more roses, and you're going to have to duct tape them on or staple them on or zip tie them back on. And you're going to have to keep putting new roses on that rose bush. So it looks like good, you know, good rose bush. Of course, the other way you can just put roses on a rose bush is to take care of your rose bush. Give it some nutrients. Water it. Give it some sunshine. You take care of it at the root level. And then the roses are going to just naturally start popping out. It's kind of a silly illustration, isn't it? But I got to tell you, I talk to a lot of Christians, and they oftentimes opt for the first method of just putting behaviors 
on their lives. God says there's such a, a better way. Paul says there's a much better way. You focus on the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. You nurture your relationship with Jesus. And when you do that, he's just going to change you. He's going to work through you so that you can't help but bear fruit to those around you. It's so critical that we not just have the right theology, but that we also have the right action in our life. And that's why we got to just keep focusing on Jesus, focusing on Jesus. And when we do, he will work through our lives to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. I want to close uh, with a story about Bill. And uh, Bill is a young guy. And uh, he uh, recently graduated from college. And uh, Bill is one of those guys that went through, spent most of his time at college away from the church. He was on sabbatical, as my son says, from church. But sometime during his senior year of college, Bill got connected with another person who led him to Jesus. And, and Bill just started really growing in his relationship with Jesus. And his behaviors hadn't yet started uh, uh, looking like the rest of us, maybe I'll say, but uh, Bill just kind of dressed with uh, simple clothes. And he was used to walking around his college campus and in holy jeans and, and a ripped up shirt and, you know, just kind of ripped up kind of everything and he wasn't super well-groomed. And uh, Bill graduated from college and he decided to go to church. And the closest church he could find was a church uh, really close to his house, but uh, it was a conservative church. It was a, a Bible-believing church. They actually believed in Jesus and his word. And so J Bill showed up to church late that Sunday, and they had just finished the, the sharing of the peace, and everybody was sitting down, and uh, he, he looked around, and he's like, oh man, there's nowhere to sit. And so everybody's sitting, sitting down, and the preacher stands in the pulpit. He's getting ready to preach. And Bill's just looking around, walking down the aisle, comes down. The only place to sit is in the front row. How many of you know that if you need a seat in church, you go to the front row, right? I mean, that's how late Bill was for church. Even the front row was filled at that church. So Bill just sat on the floor. And it was, it was pretty awkward. Bill didn't fit within the congregation, right? And pretty soon, one of the elders got up from the back of the church. He was one of those elders who wore a three-piece suit. He was all buttoned up. You know, he was showing respect and reverence for the Lord and when he went to church. And he was a guy in about his 80s, silver hair, and he was walking down the aisle. And everybody's kind of watching what's going on because it was such, you know, uh, this doesn't fit kind of thing. And he had a cane. And as he slowly walked down the aisle, everybody's thinking, oh, he is going to give Bill the business, right? Because he doesn't fit. And so everybody watched, and the preacher just stood there in the pulpit because there was no point in preaching because <laughs> everybody was looking at what was going on. And pretty soon, this elder of the church came down, stood next to Bill, and sat on the floor with him because he didn't want Bill to sit alone in church. And then the preacher looked up, and he said, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. But what you just witnessed, you will never 
forget. Then he looked at the congregation and he said, be careful how you live your Christian life. Your life might be the only Bible some people ever read. See, our actions matter, don't they? Certainly our theology matters. Our doctrine matters. Jesus matters. But at the end of the day, how we live our faith as a servant, as a bondservant, as a doulos to others around us, that's really what gets communicated about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul who was writing so long ago to this young intern, Titus. And God, in the midst of it, he talks about slaves obeying their masters. And God, that's who you've called us to be today. Servants who take care of others around us. Who have an attitude of humility. An attitude of servanthood. Who live our lives with excellence. We reach out and love other people. And so, God, as we're thinking about continuing to build a healthy church, speak to us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.